I invite you to uh, open in your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians 12. It's a, it's a passage we began to look at last time. We looked at the first uh, six verses of this section. This morning, I want to uh, read the entire 10 verses and press ahead from where we left off, if you will, last time. Here's what Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard such things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One of the gospel songs that we sang frequently when I was younger begins with this stanza. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. And then the chorus following each stanza goes like this. Since Jesus came into my heart, since Jesus came into my heart, floods of joy o'er my soul like the sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. As a young person, I sang that chorus unthinkingly. But now after 68, almost 69 years of life, when I sing that chorus, the question that comes to my mind is, really? Really? In light of life experience, are the words of that chorus on target? In other words, ever since I've been saved, do flood tides of joy constantly roll over me? That's what the chorus says. I don't know about you, but the answer for me is no, it's not the case. So, when the floods of joy are not present, this is what I ask myself, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong 
my faith? Maybe is it lacking altogether? Is there something deficient in my Christian life and walk? Or maybe is the chorus misleading? And I submit to you, the chorus can indeed be misleading. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There are times when flood tides of joy, to use the words of the chorus, when flood tides of joy are abundant in glorious ways. But there are also days of trial, are there not? There are days of unremitting thorns. There are days sometimes of almost unimaginable sorrow. There are days of great heartbreak. There are days filled with questions, some of them, many of them, unanswerable. There are struggles in life, great and many. There are times when the sea billows of joy, my own perspective, my own experience, are not crashing over me. They're there, but they're sounding off in the distance somewhere. Stories told of a Sunday school teacher who uh, always began her class with prayer requests. And so she asked the, the children in her class, as she did every Sunday, uh, what prayer requests they might have that they could pray for in class and remember during the week. And so one young girl in the class uh, asked for prayer because the school year was starting and she was going to a new school and she was afraid and wanted prayer. Uh, another girl in the class had a member of her family that had some serious health concerns and so asked for prayer. Uh, a boy in the class said, I have a friend in my class in school. He's going through some troubled times. Could we pray for him? And then another girl in the class said, well, I would like you to pray for my family. A very dear friend of the family died last week, and it's tough for all of us. So those were some of the requests. And then the teacher asked for a volunteer in the class to pray. And a young boy volunteered to lead in prayer. And he launched into prayer without thinking, like so many of us do, with basic religious prayer cliches. God, we thank you for all these blessings, is the way he started. And then he realized what he had just said. And he hesitated for a moment, and then he continued and said, and God, we thank you for all these not-so-blessings. Let me ask you a challenging question. Which things in life are the blessings, and which things are the not-so-blessings? Oh, we think we know the answer, don't we? That's an easy question. Anything that's joyful, anything that is affirming, Anything that is comfortable, why, that's in the blessing category. Duh, everybody knows that. I mean, to have a good job, good health, everything going great with your family, why, those are the blessings. But then the setbacks, the loss, the illness, the financial hardship, you can expand the list. Well, those things are clearly in the not-so-blessing category. But what do we learn from Paul in our text? And it's namely this, that the difficult circumstances in life, the negative ones as we would evaluate it, 
the situations in our lives that, that weigh down upon us in ways we can't express even to others. First of all, those things are not arbitrary. Did, did you see that in the text? Those things are not arbitrary, but they are given, they are allowed, they are shaped, they are portioned out by God, our Heavenly Father, for our good. And in God's good time, we recognize that in the end, He's able to turn those sorts of things into blessings. But if you're the same as I am, it takes a while to recognize that, doesn't it? It took Paul a while to recognize that. That's what he says in the text. We'll look specifically in just several moments. But to be able to down the road somewhere, to be able to understand that the painful and negative and distressing things in life, God allows them, can we even dare say brings them into our lives for good. And this morning, for those of you that are going through times of testing and trial, and I know there are some of you who are, whether or not you understand the purpose behind your struggles right now, whether or not you at this moment see them as actual blessings, can you at least this morning, at, at the very least, believe that there is a God who knows you by name, that He cares about you, that your life is in His hands, that He knows what He is doing. Even when He brings, even when He allows into your life those things that you would readily put into the not-so-blessings category. Well, before we, we dig a little further into this matter of not-so-blessings, Paul uses the word thorn in this text. Before we dig a little bit more into that, let me remind you of where we have been in this passage and indeed in the verses preceding. Paul is, as I pointed out last time, is at the end of his so-called fool's speech. A speech marked by boasting from one end to the other, if you will. It's a speech which began in the previous chapter, chapter 11, in verse 21, and here is the culmination now of his famous fool's speech. And, and the context of it, you've heard me say it several times, false teachers had, and among other things, they were great boasters. They boasted about their heritage, their ethnicity, their education, their credentials, their letters of recommendation. Here, we can even show them to you, they would say. They boasted about how faithful they were, how many miles they had traveled, how dedicated they were, the people that they knew, all those kinds of things. And as our text indicates, they boasted about all kinds of ecstatic visions and revelations. God spoke to me. God said this. I mean, they, they boasted about everything. And the Corinthians were impressed by them in every way. Paul's not like them. He's not flashy. He's not smooth and winsome in so many ways. These newcomers are. And seems like they're saying pretty much the same thing that Paul says. That was the Corinthians' assumption. And so they're impressed by these newcomers. They're, they're captivated by these false teachers. They're captivated by their theology. A theology which Paul says to them in chapter 11, you're being led astray because they talk about Jesus and the gospel and the Holy Spirit just like I do, but it's a different Jesus. Paul says, wake up. It's a different gospel. 
than the one that you received. It's a different Holy Spirit. They use all the same terminology, but they mean something very different by it. And so what is Paul going to do? It's a challenge for him to to shake the congregation, if I can put it that way, to awaken them. How can he do so? How is he going to respond to what's going on in the congregation? How is he going to shake them out of their false perceptions of ministry and theology? How can he break the hold that these false teachers have in the congregation? Well, Paul does something radical. He decides to meet them on their own ground. And he decides to do a little boasting himself, he says to the congregation, but not as his opponents do, uh, not at all as one might expect. What did we see in chapter 11? Paul begins to boast, and what does he boast about? He boasts about hardships and dangers and setbacks of all kinds. You remember even the catalog that he had? How many times he was shipwrecked? How many times in jail? How many times he... I mean, he put numbers with it. He has the whole list, plus some general categories as well. He laid out this whole catalog of suffering up to the point that he wrote 2 Corinthians. That's what he's boasting in. And then if you remember, he wrapped up that whole list, that whole catalog of sufferings, by telling a rather humiliating story. As he was finishing his training, he was out in Arabia for three years, Scripture says, and now he's ready to launch full-time, if you will, into apostolic ministry. He finds himself trapped in the city of Damascus. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that the authorities wanted to kill him. Those are Luke's words. And so Paul has to somehow make his escape, and you remember the story, I've related it uh, several weeks ago, there is obviously a, a Christian family that, that lives, they have a house on the wall of Damascus with a window facing out. And Paul makes it to this safe house, and in the middle of the night, some ropes are tied together, and he's lowered in a wicker basket down the wall in the middle of the night, and he makes a run for it as a wanted fugitive. That's what Paul, quote, boasts about. And, and all of this is startling because a sane person doesn't boast about those sorts of things. Does he? I mean, they're not accomplishments. If I were uh, candidating at a church, I wouldn't put that kind of stuff on my resume. The church council would look at that and say, you're nothing but trouble. Next candidate. Uh, they're not exactly ministry highlights, are they, in the way we think of them? So now in our text, we come to the end of Paul's fool's speech. And it seems like, finally, he has something legitimate to boast about. Something worthwhile. Because he brings up dreams, visions, revelations. And we wait with excitement. We wait with expectancy. This is going to be really good when he relates all these visions and revelations that God has given to him. But then we read the text, and it's like, what a letdown. What a letdown. I mean, it all starts well enough. What, what does Paul say in the text? I was caught up into the third heaven. I was caught up into the paradise of God. And so we wait. It's like, so what happened there? Tell us all about it. This is going to be exciting. And Paul says, I can't tell you anything about it. Did you notice that? Number one, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I have no idea, plus it doesn't matter. And then while I was there, yes, I experienced many things and I heard many things, but I can't share any of it with you. 
I mean, so if that's the case, why even bring it up? And then we realize here in this text that Paul is not interested in boasting about this great vision or any other for that matter. No, Paul says in verse 6, you notice, he says, now if I wanted to boast, he says verse 6, I wouldn't be a fool in doing so because I'd be telling you the truth, but I refrain from it. Notice the end of verse 6. I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. I don't want you Corinthians to view me in some exalted way because I've related these glorious visions and it's like, oh, the Apostle Paul. Oh, talk about a great and awesome personage. Did you hear those stories that he told? And on that basis of receiving all these revelations, why, he must be an apostle. We better listen to him. Paul says, I don't want any of that. What does he say in the end of verse 6? Evaluate my life and my ministry and my apostleship based on what you see in my daily life. What is it that I teach, Paul says? What is it that I preach? How do I live my life from day to day, from week to week? Evaluate me on that like you would any other person. Paul says, take note of those whose lives have been changed by the gospel. I brought the gospel. There were those who trusted in Christ. Their lives have been transformed. Okay, evaluate me as an apostle based upon what you see and upon what you hear. And Paul says, I want you to understand, you believers in Corinth and, and to all of us as well, I face many of the same struggles and temptations and trials that you do. Which for Paul means what? If anything good, this is what Paul is saying, if anything good comes from my ministry, it's not because I'm the eminent apostle Paul. It's not because I have had revelations and visions beyond anybody else. If, if anything good happens in my ministry, it's only because of God's abundant grace. He called me to salvation. He equipped me with gifts to serve Him. And it is His Spirit's power working in and through my life in the midst of my weakness and my frailty and my limitations. All glory be to God, Paul says. All right, so that's fine. But if Paul isn't going to boast in visions and revelations and wow his audience with his experience, why does he even bring up the subject? And the answer is in verse 7 of our text. And there we discover that the only reason Paul references this particular vision, which he doesn't tell us anything about, is to lay the groundwork for what he really wants to draw our attention to, namely a severe thorn in his flesh, a severe trial, a thorn which, according to what our text says here, was given to him as a direct result of the vision he had received 14 years earlier, a thorn God gave him as a gift. Now, you notice in verse 7, Paul puts it in the passive voice. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me. Okay, who's the subject of the passive verb? If you were to look up the word translated given, in the Greek language, it's always used of God giving good things. 
So the subject of the verb is God. Paul could have put it in the active voice. God gave me a thorn in the flesh. But notice the very next phrase, at the same time, a messenger of Satan to afflict me, to harass me in every way, to harm me, to drain my energies, to frustrate me in my apostolic work, to cause me to draw back, maybe to drop out altogether. And so what was given as a gift by God, Satan seizes on it, sees it as an opportunity to twist God's gift into something destructive. You think for a moment about what Paul had experienced. This heavenly visit, he was in the presence of God. He experienced heavenly glory. He heard God speak to him. He received unprecedented revelation. That's pretty clear from this text. Now, what would be the most natural human response to experiencing that sort of thing? I mean, it's a phenomenal, unique experience. What would be the normal human response? It would be one of enormous pride and spiritual conceit of the worst kind. I mean, was any other, as Paul writes this, was any other apostle given that kind of experience and privilege? The answer is no. Was any other Christian, as Paul writes this, given that kind of experience? The answer is no. Paul is in an exclusive club of one. And so what does God do? Notice again verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He says it twice. Paul, Paul, in his case, understands the reason for the trial and the thorn. Uh, The question everybody asks and wants to have answered is, so what was the thorn? Paul deliberately doesn't tell us. There have been a lot of surmisings over the history of the church what the thorn was. Uh, Some have suggested it was an unremitting temptation of some kind that he constantly struggled with. Uh, Some have put it in the realm of emotion and psychology, issues in his mind and heart he just that, that constantly created turmoil and if you want to even use the word chaos within that he struggled with. Some have surmised that. Others, and I put myself in this category, it was some kind of physical affliction. And uh, in that realm, there have been a lot of suggestions. I tried to collect some of them. Paul experienced, some will say, chronic migraines. Significant eye problems, seizures, gastritis, gallstones, gout, deafness, a serious speech impediment. A lot of guesses as to what the thorn in the flesh was. But it was so severe, this is what we gather, is Paul uses the word, well, in the English Standard Version that I'm using, uses the word harass. I don't like that word, it's a weak translation. If you have a new international version, it's much better. There was given me this thorn, the NIV translates it, to torment me. That's what Satan's doing with it. I like the King James the best of all. The King James uses the word buffet. Because that's actually what the word means. It's a Greek word which means to clench your fist and hit somebody square in the face. It's used in the Gospels for the soldiers striking Jesus in the face at his trial and beating him mercilessly. That's the word buffet. 
to torment. So whatever it was, it was more than harassing. That's kind of a mild word. It was severe, it was recurrent, it was disabling from time to time. But Paul isn't interested in a medical diagnosis. He could have given one because he was traveling with Luke a lot of the time, and Luke was a licensed physician. I mean, Luke could have given us, Paul could have jotted it down, what Luke told, what, you know, what his condition was. Paul certainly knew what it was from Luke's medical care for him. But Paul isn't interested in a description of his illness or whatever it was. He's not interested in a description of the thorn. He's only interested in its theological origin. Do you, do you understand that from the text? And in its ultimate purpose. But you notice in this text, like all of us, when thorns come, all Paul could see and feel was the thorn. That's all he could see. He couldn't see beyond it. He didn't at first regard this thorn in the flesh as a blessing. He put it right away in the not-so-blessings category. He viewed it as a hindrance. He could carry on his apostolic work, he assumed, much better, much more effectively, if he didn't have the thorn. And we know that because what does Paul tell us here? He says, I prayed earnestly and repeatedly that the Lord would remove the thorn. Have you ever done that in your life when you're going through a trial? Do you pray like Paul prayed in this text? Yes, you do. Yes, I do. He prayed repeatedly, and you notice verse 8, pleaded with the Lord about this three times. Doesn't mean he prayed three little prayers. Lord, here's my affliction. Please take it away. Amen. Then a little later, a simple prayer. But three periods of time that he prayed and entreated the Lord. Take this away from me. You should catch the, the, the three times here. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane? How many times did he go by himself and pray? Three times, if possible. Take this cup away from me. Paul, three times, on three extended, intense occasions, prayed that the thorn would disappear. And in affliction, we pray the same way. At least I do. At least I do. And so what does Paul want? He wants a quick fix miracle. But sometimes, and this is hard for us to handle, Sometimes the thorn cannot be extracted by prayer. And if it's a physical sort of thing, neither a miracle. The thorn remains. That's hard to deal with. But instead, God for His glory, that's always prime. God for His glory and for our ultimate good, whether we see it at the moment or not, allows the thorn to remain. But that's hard to come to terms with at first. I'm talking about my own experience. Maybe you can identify with it. That's hard to come to terms with at first. You mean the health and wealth preachers are wrong? Yes. You mean it's not necessarily God's will that each of his children is healed? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what the text says. You mean that affliction and weakness and unremitting trials do not indicate the absence of God's blessing? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Think about Job. Think about Job. 
So in those times in our lives, and I don't know who I'm even talking to this morning, but I know in, in a congregation like this, there, there are all kinds of things that we bear. There are thorns that pierce us very deeply. In those times in our lives, maybe in your life this morning where the thorn is there, it's not going anywhere. What is God trying to say to you through the affliction? Paul didn't get it right away. In my life, I've never picked up on it right away. What is God trying to say to us? And as you listen, as you read God's word, as you pray, as you meditate, as through the course of days and weeks and months, God is at work in your life. What you come to realize by the grace of God is I might be mistaken about whether this thing goes in the not-so-blessing category. Maybe I should move it up into the blessing category. But you don't come to that right away. Most of you have probably not heard of Henrietta Mears. She died back in 1963. She was a, a wonderful, brilliant uh, Christian educator and author. She had a significant impact upon evangelical Christianity in the United States in the 20th century. In fact, one a church historian has called her the mother of modern evangelicalism. Her influence was great. Back a number of decades ago, she was very interested in Sunday school. She set the standard for modern Sunday school today. She's the one who said we need to have material that has substance to it. She was the one who came up with the idea we needed a graded curriculum. This had never been thought of, where you have curriculum for three and four-year-olds, then for first and second graders and junior hires and adults. She came up with the whole idea of graded curriculum from the youngest children up through adults. She founded Gospel Light Publishers. She wrote that best-selling book, What the Bible is All About. Uh, she was one of the founders of uh, the National Sunday School Association. And one of the amazing things about this woman's life and testimony is that by, with her influence and through her personal contacts, she shaped the lives and ministries of Billy Graham, Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, Dawson Trotman, the founder of The Navigators, Richard Halverson, who some years ago was chaplain of the U.S. Senate, and not only them, but nearly 400 other significant leaders went into full-time ministry because they attended her Sunday school class at Hollywood Presbyterian Church in California. She had an amazing, amazing influence, but she suffered from a severe thorn in the flesh. And for her, it was tremendously bad eyesight. She had it all of her life. In her earlier years, there was great fear on her part and on everybody's part that she would go completely blind. But even with such a, a limitation, she was able to read, actually. Of course, it had to be magnified. Able to read, able to study. And here's what she said near the end of her life. This woman in the 20th century who shaped modern evangelicalism in our country. Here's what she said. She said, you know, I believe my greatest spiritual asset throughout my entire life has been my failing sight. 
Let that sink in. My greatest spiritual asset throughout my entire life has been my failing sight. Here's the next sentence. It has kept me completely dependent upon God. She put it in the blessing category by the grace of God. And so I want to say to you, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. The Lord works through thorns in life. The Lord works through our not-so-blessings. He works through our weaknesses, our sufferings, our limitations, our inadequacies, our disabilities. He works through our failures. He works through our fears. The hymn writer puts it this way, that being so, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. As you sit here this morning, what have you put in the blessings category? And what have you put in the not-so-blessings category? Are you sure that everything in the not-so-blessings category belongs there? Or does it need to be moved? Let's pray. Lord, th these are tough things. All of us work through them and not in a straight line either. Uh, but we struggle immensely. And there are uncertainties and fears. And yes, Lord, there are times where we become angry with you. We say, I don't understand. It's not fair. Why? Why me? All sorts of things in our hearts and our minds. But Lord, um, by the working of your Spirit, we are enabled as time goes by, perhaps not perfectly in this life, I'm sure not perfectly in this life, but in some sense to get an understanding of perhaps this is why I've gone through what I've experienced. Maybe this is why the trial remains. Maybe this is why the thorn is not going to be extracted in this life. But Lord, um, as you work in our hearts and our lives and you bring us to that place, that place of surrender, a place then actually of peace, a place where, as Paul says here, when I'm completely weak, that's when I'm strong, because if anything good happens, it's not me and everybody knows it. And so, Lord, work through all of our weaknesses. Give us the patience to wait, to wait on your perhaps revealing in some way your purposes. But whether or not one day when we see Jesus, it'll all be plain, it'll all be clear. Maybe for some of us it will not be until that day. But there is a day coming when all the dark things shall be made plain. And so, Lord, as we live this week to come, the days to come, Give us grace and strength that we might rightly face all that comes our way. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.